Good to see everyone. Uh, hope you guys are doing well. It's quite hot today, uh, so make sure you stay hydrated. I have a bottle of water for the first time in a long time. Um, so, I see a few new faces. Uh, if you are new here, I always say this every week, but I, I genuinely mean it. Um, stick around after service. We'd love to get to know you. We know it's not easy to visit a new church uh, and be surrounded by people you don't know. Uh, I'm an introvert. I might not look like it, but I'm an introvert. Uh, I, I, I get very uncomfortable around new people, but we are friendly uh, and we'd love to get to know you. Um, so please stick around after worship. Uh, we've got some snacks outside as well. Um, so today's passage, uh, we're continuing our series in Mark and we're in Mark chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 18 to 21. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 21. I'll give you guys a second to turn there in your Bibles. The Word of God reads, And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? Or in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, we thank you for this passage. Uh, it was a difficult passage to study. It was a difficult passage to prepare for. As we examine this hypothetical question from the Sadducees, uh, once again, we ask that we would be able to hear your voice through the words of Mark's gospel, that we'd hear, we'd understand, but that we'd also respond and be transformed by the power of your word. Lord, we pray that as we journey through this life on this side of eternity, that each time we open up your word, that we would get a greater and greater glimpse and understanding of who you are and in light of who you are, understand who we are. And so, Lord, once again, we pray for wisdom. We pray for clarity to be able to hear your voice. And may you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I can say this because my wife's not here. She's in the Kids Connect thing. Uh, my wife is a very... No, just, I, check, I always check with her before I use her as a sermon illustration. But my wife is a very honest person. Uh, maybe not to other people. Like she'll tell white lies to other people. But to me, she's she's very, 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 very honest. Um, it's good. It's, 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 it is good. 
Um, there's been times where I put a lot of work into a sermon, and she would sit in the congregation, hear my sermon, and it'd go well. Like, I just felt like the words just poured out, and I'd, I'd just finish the sermon, be in a good mood, and then we'd be driving home, I'd be smiling, and then my wife would ask me, how do you think your sermon went today? I think it went, oh, I loved it, it went well. It was like all the preparation, you know, it just, it, it clicked, everything clicked. She's like, yeah? Like, well, how do you think you went? Yeah. And she does that with a lot of things, my appearance, and it, like it's for my good, my sermons over the years. Uh, anyone that's heard me preach five, six, seven years ago, they'll notice that my, the way I preach has actually changed a lot. Uh, I was much more angrier in the pulpit, a lot more yelling, um, like spit flying everywhere. Um, but the first time she was honest with me, my encounter with her honesty, uh, was when I actually flew to Korea um, to ask her to date, enter into a relationship with me. I flew to Korea. And up until that point, all we'd seen of each other, like we, we saw each other like a few times when she came to Australia on a working holiday visa, but we didn't really hang out. And so she went back to Korea. And when we started talking and I expressed like my interest in her, the only exposure that we had to each other were photos on social media. Uh, and Koreans have this app called Kakao Talk. And so I did this, and I found out it wasn't just me. She did this as well. Um, but you'd scroll for, through photos of that person. Like, oh, yeah, this is the one. I'm going to go to Korea. I'm going to... And I'm sure she did the same to me. She did, because she showed photos of me to her mom. And I remember when I went to Korea, uh, and we decided, okay, let's meet at this restaurant in front of there. We'll have dinner, and then maybe get a cup of tea after. And I, I stood there waiting. I, I dressed to the lines, like wore what I thought was an amazing outfit, but I, I shared last week that I don't really have a good sense of fashion. Um, but I was standing there. I, like, I had cologne on. I had like nice, what I thought were nice clothes on. And then I saw her. Um, she still looked as pretty as I remembered her uh, when I saw her back in Sydney. And she waved at me, and I waved at her. And then the very first words out of her mouth, I'll never forget, she walked up next to me, put her elbow on my shoulder, and said, were you always this short? <laughs> and honesty, an honest wife. Um, but the reason I share this with you, uh, there, there is a purpose to this. Um, the reason I share this with you is because up until that point, all I really knew about my wife were the photos that I saw of her. And all that she knew about me were the photos that she saw of me. She couldn't gauge how tall I was in my photos. Um, and I share this because sometimes when it comes to our understanding of God, we have a very limited snapshot of what we know about God. That snapshot might be defined by uh, culture, you know, traditions, practices that we just grew up just accepting as the norm. Um, but today's passage will show the importance of having a multidimensional understanding of who God is, and it's going to explain how we can actually go about doing that. But I explained last week that Jesus, in this part of Mark's gospel, he's in Jerusalem. He's entered into the lion's den because it was the headquarters of Jesus' opposition. A fortnight ago, we saw Jesus challenged by the high priest. Uh, last week, we saw Jesus challenged by a team of Pharisees and Herodians. And today we see that it's the Sadducees that come 
to challenge Jesus and really make him look like a fool in front of the public. Um, but, you know, we've seen these different groups. We've seen chief priests, scribes, Herodians, Pharisees, and now Sadducees. What was the difference between all these groups? Well, I explained last week that the Pharisees were religious fanatics. They were all about keeping the law, keeping God's word. And to ensure that God's word was kept, they made rules to make sure that the original rules were kept. So even like working on the Sabbath, to make sure they didn't work on the Sabbath, they limited how far they could actually walk on the Sabbath. So if you walked a particular distance and you reached a certain distance limit, you couldn't move. That was it. You just sit down and then that's it. So the, the Pharisees, they were religious nuts. They were fanatics and they were all about keeping God's commandments. The Herodians that we saw last week, they were loyalists and supporters of King Herod and really puppets of the Roman government. The Sadducees in today's passage, on the other hand, uh, they were actually quite a distinct group, uh, distinct in their reputation, distinct in their beliefs. For example, verse 18, it says that the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. What's so distinct about this? Well, Jews traditionally accepted that the resurrection was a real thing, that there is a coming resurrection. Why? Because God's word implied it. If you look at the prophecy in Ezekiel 37, where God breathes over a valley of dry, dead bones, and the bones come to life, flesh appears, and an army rises up, that was a prophecy that Israel believed was about the resurrection of their, of their country, a national resurrection where Israel would be brought back to life. Job 19, 25, 26, it says, For I know my Redeemer lives, and at the, uh, at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So he's saying that there is something that's going to happen after death, even if my body rots away I'm still going to be alive and I'm still going to see God. Psalm 16, 9, 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or death or let your Holy One see corruption. And Daniel, I'll share one more. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's just a few. You could rattle off a bunch more. But the Old Testament clearly taught and implied that one day there would be a resurrection from the dead. Whether it's an individual resurrection or a national resurrection, the Bible promised that there is a coming resurrection and generally most of the Jewish community accepted this. But if that's the case, why didn't the Sadducees the reason was that the Sadducees only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were God's word. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, otherwise known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. They believed that these five books only were the word of God. And so if you go back to the passages that I quoted, what books are these located in? Outside of the first five books. For the Sadducees, they believed that every book after Deuteronomy, at the very best, was just a commentary. It wasn't actually the authoritative word of God. It could be a lens that could help you possibly read the first five books, 
but only the first five books were the word of God. And because they considered the Pentateuch or the Torah exclusively to be the word of God, the Sadducees didn't really believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in spirits or angels or demons. And given that they didn't believe in anything supernatural, obviously they're not going to believe in a resurrection. The idea that there'd be such a thing as a resurrection to them, uh, they believed it was just stupid, illogical, doesn't make any sense. Uh, they didn't believe in an afterlife. If there's no resurrection, then if you die, you're dead. There's nothing after that. And, you know, uh, they didn't believe in uh, an afterlife. They believed that once you died, that was it. The end. Just entering into eternal nothingness. Um, to them, there was nothing supernatural that existed. And so given that they held to this belief that there was no resurrection, naturally, their focus in life was living their best life now. Because why wouldn't you? If there's nothing after this life, if when you die, that's it, why wouldn't you want to live the most comfortable, successful, prosperous, healthy, most entertained life possible? Why wouldn't you live for your pleasure now if there's nothing that's going to come after it? And so these Sadducees, like the Pharisees were, weren't rich, they were religious, um, but the Sadducees, on the other hand, because they lived for prosperity, they were quite successful. Uh, they, they had a lot of money. They had a lot of businesses. And when you have a lot of money and you know, you're, you're, you're an influential figure in society, you have a lot of power, political power as well. And so similarly to the Herodians, they were quite a political bunch. Uh, they were all about keeping good relationships with Rome because if you, if you have a good relationship with the oppressing government, then things are generally going to go well for you. Um, but they were all about power, success, and money. And so when Jesus um, you know, drove out the money changes in the temple and attacked the businesses, who do you think would have been the most pissed off? It would have been the Sadducees. Chances were these businesses, were, were, they were actually the businesses that were run by this group. Uh, and the temple was their place where they exercised their power. The Sadducees, they lived with that mantra. The one that's celebrated, celebrated today. Live like there's no tomorrow. And all of this, because this is who they were as a group, uh, this kept them at odds with the Pharisees. Um, and so just like last week, I explained to the Pharisees, you know, the Pharisees, how they didn't like the Herodians. Same thing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't like each other. And yet despite this, they were willing to unite their strength to fight a common enemy, Jesus. And so given that the chief priest had failed, the Pharisees and the Herodians had failed in staining the reputation of Jesus, the Sadducees in today's passage, they roll up their sleeves and think, you know what, let's give it a shot ourselves. And they come to Jesus asking a ridiculous question. Uh, it says that they came to him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child. The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he had died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? But the seven 
had her as his wife. So they begin by acknowledging Jesus as teacher, which is interesting. Rabbi, teacher, a person of authority. And, you know, they're probably just copying what the Pharisees did last week. You know, trying to catch Jesus of God by showering him with flattery. Um, but this question, for the Sadducees to ask this question, uh, is ridiculous on so many levels. And I'll explain why in a moment. Um, this question, it's, it's what we call a logical fallacy. Like, it reminds me of, an, like, an episode on the Simpson, of The Simpsons. I don't know if The Simpsons is still on. Um, but I remember when I was a kid, I watched The Simpsons, and someone asked Ned Flanders, can God create a chili hot dog so chili that he's unable to eat it? A logical fallacy. It's like asking, if God can do anything, can he make a square circle? Now, for the Sadducees, this question, this question that they ask, it hinges on what they think they know about the scriptures, particularly regarding Deuteronomy 25, which touches on this very theme. Because remember, outside of Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Sadducees don't consider anything else to be the word of God. And Deuteronomy 25, 5-6 says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies, and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this was the custom that was taught in Deuteronomy, that if a man's brother died, sorry, if a man died rather, his brother would become the widow's husband. Uh, and just, just so we're clear, um, this didn't apply if the brother was married. I, you know, the teaching wasn't get divorced and marry your brother's wife or get, the, or get a second wife. That, that wasn't it. Um, it was if you were single. Uh, this was the responsibility that God gave to his people. Um, and the purpose of this, one was to ensure uh, the safety of the widows. Because once a woman lost her husband back then, you really had no, no means of supporting yourself, no means of surviving, because there was no one to take care of you. Um, it was to also ensure that the, the, the family, uh, family line within Israel, it would be preserved so that your, your bloodline wouldn't actually die out. Um, and it was also to ensure that the wealth of Israel, everything that belonged to the tribe of, tribes of Israel, would stay within those tribes. Now, what the Sadducees did was take this teaching that Moses gave in Deuteronomy and then just make the most extreme scenario possible um, by applying it seven times. You know, this woman... Her husband dies, she marries the first brother. He dies, then marries the second brother. He dies, then marries... Like, just look at... What are the chances of this happening? Um, they take the worst possible scenario, and then they say, okay, they've all died. None of them have had kids. They die. And then if they rise again, who's the woman going to be married to? Because at, like, at some point in her life, she was legitimately married to all seven men. This was what they asked. What a stupid question to ask. Stupid. Especially for the Pharisees to ask. Because if you don't believe in a resurrection, why do you care? 
If you believe that once you die, that's it. There's no resurrection. There's no life after death. Why would you bother asking a question about the resurrection? It's a stupid question. But if you're like me, it does make you curious what happens. It's a perplexing one. But because it's impossibly absurd, their idea is that if Jesus can't answer this question, then we've got him. This was how the Sadducees planned their gotcha moment with Jesus. You know what? This Jesus, the the guy who's claiming to be the new teacher on the scene, the new up-and-coming preacher, the guy that's saying that he's the Christ, the Son of God, the great I Am, the Son of David, and the guy that's saying he's God, God incarnate. If God cannot answer a question about God's word, then Jesus can't possibly be God, can he? And if he's not God, then what is he? The serious law says he's either a lunatic, a liar, or a fraud. And so they ask this question, and kind of like with the Pharisees and Herodians from last week, you can almost picture the Sadducees after they ask this question, just kind of crossing their arms, looking at each other, smiling, nodding, thinking that they've outsmarted Jesus. But Jesus responds with a a summary statement to explain everything that's wrong with their question and their intention behind the question. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. To put it simply, he's saying, you don't know the Bible. And because you don't know the Bible, you don't understand the power of God at all. And because you don't understand the power of God, it's no wonder you guys don't believe in a resurrection. He continues to explain in verses 25 to 27. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the living. Oh, sorry, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Um, There's a few things that Jesus says here, um, but I want to start from the end from verse 27. Because remember, Jesus has just told them, you don't understand the Bible. And because you don't understand the Bible, everything else about God that you know, or you think you know, is distorted. It's skewed. It's wrong. And almost like a power move. Because remember, the one defining, if you were to pick one thing about the Sadducees that everyone understood, is that they, did, they didn't believe in a resurrection. Um, the second thing would probably be that they only held to the first five books of the Bible, being the Bible. Um, but almost like a power move, Jesus begins by dismantling their belief that there is no resurrection. And almost as if to stick it to them, he proves it. By not quoting to Psalms, Daniel, or Job like I did when I shared the proof text with you, but by going to the first five books of the Old Testament. Remember to them, only Genesis to Deuteronomy is God's word. So Jesus says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the books of Moses, or the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, where is that? Exodus. 
how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And the secret to what Jesus is trying to say is in that line, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Because God spoke these words to who? To Moses in Exodus at the burning bush. And the significance of that, when God spoke those words to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long dead. And if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead when God spoke these words to Moses, it doesn't make sense the grammar he uses to describe his relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. Because if there's no resurrection, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are dead when God's speaking to Moses, you wouldn't use the word uh, am, I am. You'd use the word was. I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. With any relationship, you never use a present text or tense verb to describe a relationship that doesn't exist anymore, do you? For example, if I were to ever die, I use a lot of, last time it was my head cut off, this time if I were to die, God forbid, and my wife were to go out and think, you know what, it's time for me to move on. If she went and told her friends, I'm ready to start dating you. JJ's dead. He's buried. He's dead. I'm ready to move on with my life. Can you set me out with, with someone? If my wife were to go out on a blind date, you know, you'd, you'd meet them, you'd have dinner, you'd introduce yourself, tell them a bit about yourself, because that's, that's the process of dating, isn't it? To get to know each other. My wife, if I'm dead, she would not say, oh, by the way, I'm married. You wouldn't say that, would you? You'd say, I was married, but my husband passed away. <laughs> God forbid. And that's why Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. That's why he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because that line does not make any grammatical sense unless there is a resurrection. It only makes sense if death is not the end. So he explains Jesus by saying this, he's really targeting the heart of their theology and exposing that their understanding of scripture, even by using the first five books of the Old Testament, that their understanding of scripture is wrong. It's flawed. They don't believe in a resurrection. He explains that it's wrong. There is a resurrection. And because they got the resurrection wrong. Even this hypothetical question that they give about the resurrection, their, their understanding of what they think the resurrection would look like if it did exist, even that, Jesus explains, is wrong. Because he says, there is no marriage in heaven. That was, that was, I remember when I first learned that, that was kind of sad. It's sad depending on how good or how bad your marriage is, isn't it? Like, but I was sad because I, like, I want to be with my wife forever. Uh, but Jesus says there's no marriage in heaven. There isn't. Kind of like the angels. When we go to heaven, we'll be living in perfect harmony, 
perfect relationship eternally, worshipping a perfect God. And sometimes we have a misconception about heaven. A lot of us don't know much about heaven. Uh, when I was younger, when you know you go to Sunday school, like, do you want to go to heaven? Yeah, I want to go to heaven. You put your hand up. And then you kind of like, they give you a piece of paper and you draw what you think you'll be doing in heaven. And you know, for me, it was always the same. I've been playing computer games for all eternity in heaven. Um, heaven would be a place where I play FIFA on my PlayStation for the rest of my life. Um, but Jesus clarifies what heaven will be like. He clarifies that there is going to be no marriage in heaven. He clarifies that according to the authority of God's word, there's only going to be one relationship between God's people. It's going to be perfect love, perfect joy, perfect harmony, because there'll be no more sin. Pastor John MacArthur says, and I quote, because of the eternal perfection of every person, there will be no, no, no need for marriage partners to complement and complete each other as husbands and wives do in this life. Jesus explains to the Sadducees their flaw in their understanding of God's word and how that has led to their flawed understanding of the resurrection. And because they don't understand the resurrection, they don't really know the power of God. And that's how today's passage ends. <clears throat> and I just wanted to share one observation um, about today's passage. And that is that understanding God's word is the key to understanding and experiencing God's power. Uh, I've heard a lot of preachers say things like, I had a word from God last night and he told me to share the secret of tapping into this special power that no one knows about yet. Uh, God is not a God that hides things. He's a God that reveals himself. Um, and it's important to understand that God's primary means for everything in the Christian life comes through his word. There are other means, but primarily it has to be through his word. Jesus makes an interesting observation in today's passage about where the Sadducees went wrong. And he says they misconstrued their understanding of God's power when it came to the resurrection because they misconstrued their understanding about God's word. Mark 12:24 is not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures, nor the power of God. For the Sadducees, their understanding of the power of God was distorted and it was limited. They denied the resurrection because they had a restricted and distorted understanding of God's word. And as much as we can be critical about the Sadducees, uh, I think we have a tendency to fall into a similar trap. Uh, because often our understanding of God our worship of God, uh, so often is defined by a lot of things. Tradition, habit, what we observed growing up, culture. The way a life, though, of faith is meant to be lived out is not through assumptions, 
but by God's word. When it comes to the worship of God, you know, we like to be creative in worship, nothing wrong with that. But even creativity in worship has to be within the boundaries of God's word. We have to worship God within the boundaries of how he tells us to worship him. And whether we know it or not, what we understand and what we believe really does shape the way we do life, the way we live life, the trajectory of our life. Because if you look at the Sadducees, they didn't believe in a resurrection. Now you might think, well, what kind of an impact would that have on your life? Well, it became apparent. Because they believed that this life was the end, their purpose and desire in life started to become living for the here and now. To have your best life now. To live today like there's no tomorrow. However, according to the authority of God's word, we are not to live like there's no tomorrow, but live understanding that there is a forever, that there is a tomorrow, and there is a day after that, and it's going to go on for all eternity. Because God is not a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. And I'll say this, because a lot of people want to experience the power of God. Everyone wants to experience the power of God if they follow him. But the greatest time you'll experience the power of God is when you live understanding that there is an eternity. Not living like there's no tomorrow, but understanding that there is a forever after this that's going to be defined by how we live our life now. And the key to understanding eternity is a return to God's word. Being clear in our understanding of God's word, but more importantly, recognizing that we are to be a people that sit under the authority of God's word. Not just knowing it, not just studying it, but recognizing that we sit under the authority of God's word. This word dictates our life. You know, one common question in youth ministry, I have a lot of students that come up and say, I don't know what God's will is for my life. And I get it. They go through high school, they finish their HSC, they need to know what course to get into for uni, what vocation to pursue, who to marry, who to date, how do I know that this girl is the one? And there are important things to think about because it's going to define the next 40, 50, 60 years of your life. But you'll never really know. Like even when I went to Korea to date my wife, I didn't hear a voice from heaven saying, that one. She's the one, Jay. I know she put her over on your arm and told you you were short, but she's still the one. No. Even when you pray about what to study at uni, what vocation to go into, you're not going to hear a voice from heaven saying, this course. I've never heard anyone pray and say that they heard an audible voice from heaven saying, you are called to clean toilets for the rest of your life. Praise God. God's word is what defines the will of God for us. It's what helps us discern the will of God. And what I say to the youth students is, these are good things to be worried about. Who you marry, what to study. 
But are you giving equal concern to what you do know God's will is? God's will. So that you go into all nations, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. God's command and God's will for your life is to be holy as I am holy. God's will for your life is to train yourself for righteousness, to pursue the gifts of the Spirit, to pursue righteousness, holiness, discipline, to exercise self-control, gentleness, patience. Yet we tend not to give any weight to these things when it comes to the will of God, do we? And I think part of the reason for that is that we, maybe not intentionally, there's times where I, like, I don't do it intentionally, but I realize I get to this point. It's because we don't give the full weight of authority to the word of God that it deserves. We study it, we learn it, we memorize it, but then we forget we are sitting under the authority of this word. This word is meant to shape the purpose of studying it so that we can be transformed. Being clear in our understanding of the word means recognizing that we sit under the authority of the word. And I know we're nearing the end of the year uh, and kind of like with any church, once you get to about December and you start thinking about New Year's resolutions, you look back at the past year and think, oh, look at that failed Bible reading plan that I started so passionately in January and I made it to about the third week and then it started sputtering out and I had a second burst in March, but then it just kind of ended there. But if you look back, you know, like I don't know about you, but for me, when I look back at a past year or, you know, years, I find that it's the times, you know, when, when I think about when I struggled spiritually, I find that it's the times that I depart from God's word. The times where I forget about the authority of God's word. The times where I stop immersing myself in God's word. That's when I find, if I were to pinpoint it and map it out. It's the times where I experience seasons of distance from God. A lack of his presence. A lack of his power. And if you map it out, you'll realize it's not a coincidence. And so my encouragement to you, Full Life, and my hope and prayer is that if you are going to do anything, if Full Life is to become anything, it is that we need to become a people that is all about God's Word. Not just reading, studying it, and knowing it, but sitting under the authority of it. Because according to God's Word, the Scriptures are the primary means by which we know him. And the word is the, the primary means of the Holy Spirit to bring people to salvation. And the word, according to Jesus today, is the key to understanding, knowing, and experiencing the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today's passage. We thank you for the faithfulness of Jesus in going through Jerusalem on his way to the cross, even if it meant having these encounters, difficult encounters with the religious leaders of the day. 
We thank you for these nuggets of truth that you reveal through each passage of Scripture. And I pray that this would just be the pattern of our lives, that we would hear your voice through your word, to understand it, to know it, to sit under its authority, and to be able to experience the power of God through the word. I pray this for all of us, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.